Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting the intersections of spirituality, philosophy, and politics in an engaging and accessible way. So, friends, I was talking with uh, a long-term friend of mine uh, who lives in New York who does work with prison abolitionist movements and the BDS, or Boycott, Divestment, and Sanction movement uh, for Palestinian rights. And she said this really interesting thing to me, which was, you know, when did so many leftists, especially in New York, she was saying, when did so many leftists start using the tarot and talking about astrology and numerology and that sort of thing? She said, I guess I missed that memo. Like, when did that, or that moment, when did that happen? And I found it'd be a really interesting question, you know, um, because although I have seen that happening more and more. On the other hand, there's also been this really strong leftist push to purge leftist communities of spiritual impulses and practices like that. So what is up with that tension? And it's come up many times, especially since the beginning of this year, with the so-called capital insurrection uh, and all the people there who some people were seen to be spiritually inclined. There's this idea, so there's that tension that we need to purge the left of spiritual and especially occult uh, impulses since that doesn't belong to leftist projects and is seen to be fascist, and that also that we somehow need to re-enchant the world using these techniques like tarot and astrology and all that. But neither of these projects are, <laughs> to me, uh, the purging or the re-enchanting, neither of them really reflect reality in any sort of meaningful way that gets us anywhere. So before I get into this episode with religious studies scholar, philosopher, and author Jason Storm, I want to talk about this a little bit. I've always hated the term re-enchantment. I've, I've always hated it. And I, I dislike when people in magical or mystical communities talk about re-enchantment um, and why we need to do it because it presupposes that the world lost its enchantment or worse, that somehow <laughs> if we just insert like a fairy into the landscape uh, or if we just talk to trees or I guess like maybe worse yet is if we just see the terms in this sort of Neil deGrasse Tyson wonder of science way, the most, to my mind, banal fucking way of seeing anything. If we just do that, then voila, we have a spiritual world, a re-enchanted world, uh, where once we just saw things as sort of cold and dead and, you know, how could we have done this to ourselves with these strip malls and, you know, um, slurry from factories pouring into rivers and that sort of stuff. But the world doesn't need to be re-enchanted or merely populated by astrological symbols in the night sky or whatever. Instead, we need to dissolve the kinds of knowing that obfuscate our understanding of the spiritual nature of existence. So in some ways, we have this kind of structure of thinking that has stopped 
me, you, everybody from seeing the other. Um, and the other is that real, <laughs> real existence of the world. All I mean by that is that we have these structures in our mind that are uh, polluting, blocking things, getting in the way. In the same way that, you know, um, if we have racism and homophobia, two things that have been leveled against me as an Arab uh, guy and a gay guy, like racism and homophobia are cultural defaults for a lot of people. Um, they're actually what people grow up in and you have to dissolve those to be able to see the other fully. Also, materialism, in, in a different way, of course, it affects people in a different way, but materialism is a sort of default as well. It's a tangle of bad notions of perception and concepts which get in the way of more open experiences. And in that way, materialism is itself a kind of enchantment. It's a form of bad enchantment. It's a kind of hex. So it's not that we need to re-enchant the world. We just need to move from one kind of enchantment to uh, another, and both are present. On the other hand, <laughs> and maybe this part will just seem more grounded to everybody if that went too philosophical for you. But on the other hand, the idea that we need to purge spirituality from the left, I think is even worse. So first of all, there's not much precedent for a left that does not have spirituality really located in it, even as we like to say that there is, or some people like to say that there is. So thinkers that people turn to, um, for materialism or dialectical materialism as the basis for leftist or progressive politics, um, they're often deeply involved <laughs> in occult, hermetic, or mystical traditions. So, okay, so this one is not necessarily leftist, but what even the, the person that people consider the founder in many ways of materialism uh, Francis Bacon was in fact interested in magic in a way, right? But then let's talk about leftists. Like Hegel was totally tangled up in hermetic traditions. And, and Marx had some of his works initially published by spiritualists. And even critical theorist Theodore Adorno had this complicated relationship with occultism. And in the meantime, there's also this long tradition of spiritual discourse in progressive leftist and anti-colonialist thinkers. Helen Keller, who was socialist, was deeply influenced by Emanuel Swedenborg, the mystic who uh, talked to angels. Um, Pascal Beverly Randolph was an anti-slavery activist who used sex magic um, and was reportedly friends with Abraham Lincoln and uh, engaged in abolition at the time. Spiritualism deeply involved in feminism. Um, anthroposophists and the work of Rudolf Steiner permeated the resistance to the Nazis through the uh, Hans and so Sophie Scholl and uh, the White Rose group that resisted the Nazis, inspired Rachel Carson, and anthroposophists rescued Jewish people from uh, the Nazis and the Holocaust. Theosophists 
from Madame Blavatsky, Annie Besant, so on and so forth. They assisted the anti-colonial movement in India. They helped refugees. They gave Gandhi the Bhagavad Gita, which inspired a lot of his work. So there is, of course, also, and this is what the leftists point to, this checkered history of occult movements too, bad history, Nazi occultism, and the many occult collaborators that they forced or didn't force, including some, but not most, anthroposophists, racism in the Theosophical Society, Julius Evola, um, neoliberal manifesting self-helpiness people, gurus, phony lean-in feminist witches, the muddled graspings of QAnon, and more. But too often, the left finds itself completely unqualified to understand and evaluate which is which. And so they just say, it's all fascism. And I've been seeing this more and more. And it's precisely because there is a dishonesty about the disenchanted past. There is no disenchanted past to leftism or progressivism. So if you don't honestly portray history, if you don't look into the multiple contact points and currents of influence that the occult, spirituality, spiritualism, magic, and so forth have in theorizing leftist concepts, ideas, activist discourse, how can you distinguish which threads are useful and which ones aren't? More to the point, and this is worse, not doing so gives fuel to centrists especially neoliberal centrists who want to keep the neoliberal status quo. So, for instance, if all spirituality and occultism is labeled as sort of Q insurrectionism, even to the point where people say, well, the QAnon shaman wants to eat organic food in prison, so that means that that's based on fascist ideas linked to uh, biodynamic farming because people have no real way of separating out or analyzing history. Then the useful currents of occultism, the useful currents of meaning, get eliminated, and historic radical thinkers can be attacked and eliminated for their interest in it. They're not allowed to, um, not allowed, but you know what I mean, they're not brought into the inspiration of the discourse and activism. If critiques of big pharmaceutical companies, this is another one, right? So, Critiques, leftist critiques of big pharmaceutical companies and interest in alternatives to factory farming and Monsanto-style agriculture, if they get smeared as anti-science or anti-vax or whatever because they connect to some spiritual threads and history, um, then first of all, some of these critiques get seized by the right and get organized by the right, which is really bad news. But also, we lose rallying points that are both reasonable and urgent, these critiques of that kind of agriculture and that kind of pharmaceutical industry. So I talk about all this and more with this episode's guest, Jason Ananda Josephson Storm, who is a professor and a scholar of religious studies. He's the author of The Myth of Disenchantment and the forthcoming and excellent book, which is a call for a new way of developing theory, Metamodernism, the Future of Theory. Jason has developed all the ideas that I talked about in his work with rich and detailed scholarly reference and the kind of rigor you'd expect someone who wants to do good work in this field rather than slap some tweets together about it, um, which I'm guilty of sometimes. (laughs) 
He puts it all this way, paraphrasing the philosopher anthropologist Bruno Latour, we have never been disenchanted. So Bruno Latour says we have never been modern. Jason says, we've never been disenchanted. Or we could put it another way, and this time quote Latour directly, as Jason does in his book, beware, or sorry, do not trust those who analyze magic. They are usually magicians in search of revenge. Do not trust those who analyze magic. They are usually magicians in search of revenge. In other words, those who want you to believe in disenchantment whether they're occultists saying the world has been overtaken by modernity and we need to reinfuse things with a sense of enchantment, or leftists uh, who are saying that we need to continue the trajectory of disenchantment, that we need to keep on this path that somehow began with Hegel even though it didn't, <laughs> they're both casting their own sort of spell. This is a pretty dizzying episode. Um, we we get we go into a lot, and it can get really dense. But always, I think, uh, if you just step back for a second, it's it's all pretty clear, and we do all the work of clarifying everything as well. And it's a kind of episode I absolutely love doing um, because we don't stop ourselves at all. We just go as deep as we want, and I'm very excited to share it with you. This show against everyone with Connor Beebe is fully funded by Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. I don't have any sponsors. Um, I suppose if I found a sponsor that was completely aligned with the mission of the show, I'd feel great about it. But most sponsors are like, I don't want like, you know, Tesco or um, <laughs> I don't know, Bed Bath and Beyond uh, sponsoring the show or whatever the hell, you know. Um, I rely on listeners to support the show, and many of you do, and I'm so appreciative of that. But also, I just love the relationship that it creates between us. This has value for you, and you support it. And there's a whole huge backlog of episodes now. This is episode 141, so there's episode 98 with Thomas Waters, the witchcraft scholar, that aligns with a lot of this, because Thomas, you know, wrote a book called Cursed Britain, which goes over how witchcraft never disappeared from the UK. Um, the first guest episode of this year that I did um, with Mitch Horowitz, um, episode 137, who is a new age and occult scholar, um, and new thought scholar. And we talk about all this too. And does the new age have a place in the left? Um, Brian O'Connor uh, on episode 89, talking with me about uh, anti-work politics, but also uh, Theodore Adorno, who I mentioned before, someone who I really didn't ever even like until I had this great conversation with Brian, who's an Adorno scholar. And it was just awesome, really eye-opening. So there's so much there, and there are all the other episodes too. So please, um, and they're all available for free, of course, but please do support the show. I mean, if you think that if you saw me around, you would buy me a cup of coffee once a month or whatever, you can um, donate that much to Patreon. I know it's a weird time for people financially, but I think that that means now more than ever, it's a good time to dedicate uh, what we can to the things that have value, that have meaning for us. And uh, I mean, the show certainly has meaning for me, but I bet it has meaning for you too. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. 
All right, and here we go now. Without further ado, uh, here's my conversation with Jason Storm. everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib, and I'm very excited to be talking with Jason Ananda Josephson Storm, um, who I will probably in the intro refer to in shorthand as Jason Storm. Um, how are you yeah, doing? Cool. Good. How are you doing? Good. I'm so excited. It feels like this conversation for me is a long time coming because um, whether you know it or not, I was in search of work of efforts like yours for a long time before I found them. So, yeah, I mean, it's funny, like just the other day I was talking to a friend in New York who does prison abolitionist movement stuff. And Mm. she was saying, you know, when did this happen that all these leftists and activists were suddenly into tarot cards and astrology and et cetera. And like, I feel like I missed out on, when that happened and I was trying to explain it to her and um, you know, I, I, the best I came up with in the moment of talking to her was something like, you know, I think a lot of now that more people from different cultural backgrounds and identity backgrounds are being pulled into leftist discourse or leftist concerns or whatever. um, Some of the kind of leveling of spirituality in some of those communities has happened. So they're bringing it in, in a form that's acceptable to leftists. And I don't know how you gel with that, but I think maybe we can start there. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, I think from my perspective, um, People have believe, like there's a there's a sort of standard story that suggests that modernity means stripping away of belief in things like tarot and magic and spirits and what have you. But that story is basically wrong. And and actually, like, it, and there are all these wrinkles on it that all turn out not to be true. Like one of them is, oh, modernity took out the magic and then post-modernity brought it back or the post-secular brought it back. But I don't think that's actually true. I think actually. Basically, the idea that modernity meant disenchantment was a story that the certain sectors of the colonizing West told itself about itself, but was wrong about. And so, you know, like there have been people into spiritualism and in tarot and to ghosts and magic. And often those people were also the people who were writing stories of disenchantment or who were themselves the the authors of the of all these grand uh, theoretical narratives. So, you know, like there's been this c- continual, I don't want to say that it's dominant, but like undercurrent of, I don't know, esotericism, occultism, new age, uh, you know, as long as we can trace back basically. And then one of the interesting things that has changed, however, and this is where I think you're right, is that as um, institutional religions have lost their grip to a certain extent, we start to then see um, a bubbling forth of a more pluralized and globalized belief. So, you know, um, people people may be going to, to, to certain churches less, like let's take, you know, for example, Western Europe, where we know church attendance is really down, but that doesn't mean they're, they're less likely to believe in ghosts. If anything, it makes them more likely to believe in ghosts. And, <laughs> and, and so, and I think you're also right that different, um, 
demographics in the United States, different minoritized groups have had different kinds of practices associated with them. And now we're starting to see them intermingling in new and fresh ways. So I think that is a, that is a change too. So, you know, we, we, um, we're seeing, I don't know, Santeria um, become more visible in different cultural milieu or, you know, we're, um, you know, what you, so and I think that's part of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, think, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. One one of the ways I frame it, and I know you write about this in Myth of Disenchantment, is you know, um, with say Adorno and the critical theorists who were rising after World War II, you know, they. <laughs> so Adorno, I, I actually like Adorno, which surprises people, and I I never liked him, and I had this guy Brian O'Connor on the show mm-hmm. who wrote a really great introduction to Adorno, and I thought, my goodness, I how can I now like this person that for the longest time I thought I deeply disliked, <laughs> but um anyway, so so he um wrote this terrible book called Stars Down to Earth, which I think is probably his worst. But basically, the thing that you get out of it that is kind of good is that a lot of the um, anti-supernatural, paranormal, occult stuff that came out of uh, critical theory and that would try to reframe Marxism um, and leftism in a certain way, you know, it, it emerged out of a rejection of what they perceived the Nazis as doing, um, and right, rightfully so. However, they all seem to sort of think, and and maybe this complicates what you've written about a little bit. I don't know, but they all seem to think that like the Nazis didn't really do any occult stuff. Like in other words, the occult stuff was just kind of mind control in the standard, like non. Uh, like there, there was no ontological. Like they don't ontologically like believe that it actually works when they look at the Nazis. They just think that the Nazis were kind of just fucking around to brainwash people, and that seems yeah. to be the big objection. Well, I think that so there are two points. Um, in the first case, I think you're. I think that the Nazis Adorno is central to this Indiana Jones narrative that imagines Nazi occultism is occultism is central to the Nazi project. Um, and partially, though, what, what he's trying to do, though, and I think this is something that, that I found from looking really carefully, is Adorno is influenced by occultists. And part of it is that people like Ludwig Klages are an influence on Benjamin really closely. And, and from there, you know, Adorno is like, you know, ooh, okay, but Klages has a narrative of disenchantment that as a ma- magic practitioner that Adorno is going to borrow in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And so it's, but Klages is... Um, anti-Semitic and, and, you know, he's, he's effed up, right. And he fucked up in a, in a bunch of particular ways, but he's, he's messy. He's not actually, he's, he's in some ways um, a proto-Nazi, but in other ways not because he's a pacifist and he's, you know, um, uh, can you just say who that is? Okay. Yeah. So Ludwig Klages, he's, uh, was an influential German, um, let's say philosopher, popular philosopher, um, who wrote primarily, um, it was part of a group called the Munich Cosmic Circle, um, and who wrote a, a series of um, influential texts that were basically about um, disenchantment. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he uses, he, he was, the, the Munich Cosmic Circle overlapped with people like Max Weber um, and, uh, you know, so so there's direct contagion between critical theory and its influences and and, and these kind of people. Um, and Clogus wrote about auras. He was influenced by um, theosophy. He was a kind of neo-pagan mystic. Um, he also was, uh, um, and Walter Benjamin had wanted to go to study with Clogus. Um, so, you know, and, and um, 
So there's a, like a direct line of influence between Clogus and the Frankfurt School. And so one of the things that, um, and in particular, Clogus talked about, he's kind of an anti-Hegelian in a certain way. It's sort of like the enminding of the world is its reification, it's its thingification. Mm-hmm. And so that's the exile of magic. But then through certain kinds of sort of sexual cosmic principles, we can return magic. Um, so he has this, this way of bringing magic back in through um, what he calls like a cosmic a cosmism, kind of a cosmic magic that you can return to the world, a causal. So you can bring in, you know, you can do stuff if you, if you gear your mind the right way. So this guy's a big popular philosopher. He's very influential on Benjamin in particular. Adorno reads him. Adorno uh, is bothered that his buddy Benjamin is, is entranced by, or, or really interested in Clogus. Adorno himself cites Clogus in um, the dialectic of, of enlightenment. Um, and so, but, but buries him in a footnote. He's like, he's diagnosed the problem correctly, disenchantment or, or rationalization, but his solution is wrong. And, you know, Clogus w- was, was, um, a Nietzschean, and he wanted a kind of irrationalism as the answer. So it's like you you tap into madness. You he thinks we all need a little bit of madness in our life. You go home at the end of a long day of work, and you need to get like drunk or something like that. You know, he's mm-hmm. like he thinks you need that bacchanalian Dionysian force, and that's very frightening. That becomes very frightening in the 1930s when forms of national socialism and and the Nazi you know the Nazi policies are 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 so prominent, so violent, so destructive. Um, and so for that reason, and, and for others, um, Adorno criticizes uh, occultism. But there's this whole mess because the Nazi Nazis as occultists is, is in, a, in a strong sense overplayed. So <laughs> it, it's so, you know, there, um, for example, um, you know, Hitler. Uh, wasn't an occultist. He, uh, the, the Nazis actually ban occult organizations in the 1940s. Um, it's true that the Tula Society was an influence on the formation of the the of what would become the Nazis. But and there were a couple people in in Hitler's upper administration that were Nazis. But in a way, that's way overplayed. So, so in a way, I think um, Adorno and company are right that tapping into forces of violent irrationalism as mm-hmm. a kind of thing can be incredibly dangerous. And also they were right that a certain form of neo-paganism can very quickly become violent anti-Semitism or, or, or anti-Christianism. It isn't to say that all neo-paganism necessarily does that. But I think Adorno is a little bit in the in those set of essays, a little bit like protesting too much because he's trying to distance himself from um, and his buddies from the influences that they're drawing on that kind of new age milieu. Like, you know, Benjamin's right. main philosophical terms of art, like aura or like, you know, um, are, are drawn directly from theosophy or the, you know, angels. I mean, angels, Kabbalah, yeah. I mean, you know, so there's a whole separate tradition uh, that's also enchanted, but but that is, um, doesn't have the same political formation to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what one of the problems that comes out of that is that so... Now, because of the intense influence of the Frankfurt School and and critical theory on the left, even when the left um, <laughs> does its critical theory disavowal, you write about occult disavowal, but the left yeah. will do its critical theory disavowal, the, the intense influence that it's had um, has led people who are leftists to... Um, believe that occultism is a fascist project altogether. And part of that is that sort of um, simplification of that moment that you were just talking about um, right. or, or those, those tangles. Right. So like something I've had, to, <laughs> something I've unfortunately had to do like for 
like one, at least once a year is explained to people that Rudolf Steiner and Anthroposophists weren't Nazis yeah. because they were occultists or or proto-Nazis or whatever. And because simply because some of their views were essentialist about race, you know, and I have to, it's like, who has the time to go into the historical context of like, actually this movement came out of, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, witnessing the Herrera and Nama genocide that the Germans committed in Africa and were creating alternative race theories to fight against that kind of essentialism and blah, blah, blah. So it's like, how can, how can you, <laughs> you know, like you can't break that down when the generalized view of the left and especially in the right, in the, in the, in the right, in the light of the current quote unquote, like insurrection at the Capitol, which seemed to draw on some sort of new age occult, uh, these kinds of ideas is like, that's a fascist project. And I think that some of that stems from this moment that you're talking about where it wasn't clarified in the writing. And so you just get this universalized picture that occult equals fascism because some occultists are fascists, of course. And well, and, and if anything, yeah. that that reinforces a fascist turning to the occult. So it's like a self, it's been a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, <laughs> right. so I mean, but I think I think it's right. And I think it's a great point of emphasis that that the occult isn't essentially connected to fascism. And we tend to use these words occult and new age as if they represent clear-cut political valences. <laughs> right. But but really those are mostly the same thing. I mean, and and also that you have magical belief, and, and this is one of the things I tried to argue in, in The Myth of Disenchantment, magical belief across the political spectrum. And so the whole narrative that you are only a believer in, I don't know, ghosts or spirits or ma- magic if you're a, a, a fascist is totally wrong. Mm. And in fact, part of the way that right-wing organizations can recruit is by, you know, leading people away via those kind of uh, uh, beliefs. Um, But, you know, I I think, you know, and especially if you look at the broad series of, you know, pluralistic beliefs, you know, if you don't just think by occultism, you mean, I don't know, like just theosophy and its descendants or something. But if you think about other kinds of magical beliefs, like, um, you know, candomblé or like, you know, hoodoo or like, I mean, there's so many different systems that are not predominantly white and are not predominantly mm-hmm. uh, in, in any way associated with, with the right wing, you know, yeah. Anthroposophy was originally on the left. Um, you know, uh, spiritualism was heavily involved in women's suffrage. So there's a lot of right. a history of a pro- strong progressivism there. Um, you know, uh, Karl Marx's um the communist manifesto was translated into English by spiritualists first. So, 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 I mean, there's, you know, so, so the assumption that, that, that those kind of beliefs are only on the right is a mistake, but it then does reinforce itself. It does gel. Like I'm going to be giving a talk, um, a virtual talk in about a month or so about some of those reinvented fascist white supremacist um, occultists but, I, but I'm going to make this exact point that you and I just made, which is that um, magic is not a sole preserve of the right or a cult belief is not a sole preserve of the right. And it doesn't necessarily terminate in it. So the thing is, you yeah. can be like a right winger. You can be a, a fascist and anti-magic. You can be a fascist and pro-magic. I mean, uh, and, and uh, you know, the idea that the most Nazis were Lutherans. I mean, if we look at the numbers, right? And but we don't think Lutheranism leads to fascism. I'm not saying that. Give Lutheran Lutherans, right? So you're really pissing off my demographic here. But I think I think that the um, <laughs> I think yeah, it's interesting because right. So if there's an idea that fa- like occultism equals fascism, like there's this idea on the left that that's so, and that but also 
this other mistaken idea, and I find it interesting that these two mistakes are made, that like occultists or people that have new age beliefs or even people that might have quote unquote alt health beliefs are actually stupid and uneducated or, or dumb or don't have access to education. So there's this weird thing where it's like a condemnation of both the pro proletariat and also like a condemnation of fascists. So it's like, so you think actually that in some ways that fascism draws from the people that you are supposed to be in some ways defending and i even find uh, yeah. it you know there's this there's that book um which i deeply I, th I think the author is really brilliant but i deeply dislike the book um the resonance of unseen things by susan left it's like a anthro anthropology book about um about ufos and ufo sightings and abductions and stuff but she doesn't ever she she keeps it as if it's a phenomena that only happens or is only believed in or experienced by a certain class demographic and that's how she presents it when in fact like it seems like um from the data that's in a book you draw heavily from in the myth of disenchantment which is paranormal america which is great great sociological book not so great for the theory, but the data is really, really great in it. That has all this stuff about um, how, you know, certain beliefs, certain experiences cut across all kinds of class uh, dynamics, demographics, all that sort of stuff. And so you wouldn't necessarily find it in this or that. So I, I find it interesting in general, there also seems to be a trend of trying to pin certain beliefs into certain uh political or class uh, kinds of stratification as well. It's not, it, it somehow it's somehow labeled that way, if that makes sense. Well, but I, mean, I, I mean, I think that there are a couple of things that, you know, we can add on that too, which is that then, you know, this idea that only dumb people believe in, in magic just doesn't fit, you know, doesn't believe, you know, only dumb people believe in Bigfoot or whatever, doesn't fit the evidence, right? Like right. if you, and in fact, you know, education is correlated with different kinds of occult beliefs and not others. And so, you know, you're more likely to believe in ghosts, the better educated you are, oddly enough, I think there's a cor correlation if you look at the numbers. But I think the, the other irony that I want to hit really briefly in passing is that on the, on the one hand, there's a certain cross-section of the left that thinks that all this stuff is um, believed in by idiots or whatever and, and is fascist. But that same section of the left often also bemoans uh, a certain kind of rationalization. And so like, that's the irony <laughs> of the Frankfurt School. So Adorno and company are saying like, you know, our, our connection to nature has, you know, some of them or their descendants are saying, you know, our, our connection to nature has been stripped out of the world and we need to get back to nature. Oh, but don't do it that way. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> right. right. And, 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 and that's, that's, it's it's a contradiction. It's 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 a mess, and so you you get otherwise you know great books about um um you know the 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 damage of certain kinds of um, hostile materialistic outlooks on the world, but then that presume that everybody has that kind of hostile materialism, and then they don't see uh they don't recognize that there are a whole bunch of people often defined as new agers who have the very beliefs that they're looking for. So like, that's my problem with a bunch of the new materialism literature. So the people mm -hmm. in that subfield who call themselves new materialists are often like, Hey, we need to think about, you know, um, <laughs> not defining things in terms of materialism or, you know, uh, 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 let's say some kind of reification of discourse. The new materials are not materialists. They're precisely denying uh, the, the materialism. And second, they're not new. And that's the part of the point is that there, there's a whole stratum of people who believe in pantheisms, of, of hylozoisms, of, of living nature, not only in other parts of the world, but within the mainstream of the West, even if they're marginalized within it, that they're, that they're ignoring, you know, the William Jameses of the world or the, right. you know, or what have you. So, yeah.
Yeah, yeah. Well, I just want to say, <clears throat> you know, I, first of all, I don't want to be, I don't want to fall <laughs> prey to the same kind of totalizing gestures that I'm accusing people of, because obviously I just said that, well, uh, all these sort of tarot astrology things are permeating the left. And then like, well, the left thinks that all that's like fascist, right? <laughs> so I don't want to f- fall prey to that. But I do want to say, and this is something that is maybe a little confusing to me about your work, which I love. So by the way, I'm not like <laughs> coming at yeah. you. It's actually from a place of resonance, but I just had a question for you, which sure. is, you know, um, like there's a, there's a difference in saying that people believe in ghosts and fairies and, you know, they fill out these surveys and say, oh, yes, we think that angels are real. We think that, you know, afterlife communication is possible. But that seems somehow different to me than structural practices surrounding them. So I'm waiting for that actually to surface in the left, not not that actually there's some sort of acceptance that, oh, you can talk about tarot on Twitter and then go to your DSA meeting, but rather um, how do these things start permeating the ideas that now surround how we enact political discourse? And so, like, I think about it here in Ireland, you know, as a past example, you know, there's a period where Catholicism and fairy doctors completely overlap and they overlap for a while. And then one of them fades out of, you know, fashion, but that still people still believe in fairies here in a certain way. Like even if you're walking with someone who's a total atheist and you walk towards like a circle of mushrooms, they'll be like, don't walk through those. Right. But that's Mm -hmm. different than having the fairy doctor live down the street from you and say, I can consult with this person and they'll come and help me understand how reality works by this and this and this rather than, you know, um, just going to the, you know, allopathic doctor or whatever. So that's my kind of like so, a little so, confusion so think, there. Yeah. So, so I think on the left, you know, so we do have people, for example, who see themselves as radical witches performing hexes on, right. on Donald Trump or, 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 or what have you. So, I mean, but we, and we also do have, um, certain kinds of alternative medical practitioners who are either taken seriously or not taken seriously by, by uh, within um, either the left or right political spectrum. But, you know, also in the U.S. we have on in, in tons of small towns, you know, there are um, fortune tellers there. You remember like in, in Northampton there, there, at least when I was there, there was that, you know, woman who, who read palms and did, did tarot reading. I mean, there's a whole story, you know, you go onto eBay and you can get people to cast spells for you. I mean, so there's a way in which I think you're right that there's a disconnect within the left about what the working class, and it's not just working class, actually middle-class America is actually doing in their day-to-day practices. There's a whole raft of professionals who we could be making better contact with if we took those kinds of beliefs more seriously, rather than assuming that they're, um, mm, mm. that they're fascist or something. But I also will grant, uh, I think, what, what I take to be your, your point, which is that we have lost a whole stratum of professionals. So they're no longer hex doctor or, you know, in, in, mm-hmm. in you know, hex doctor used to be a major uh, profession in um, so-called Pennsylvania Dutch, for mm-hmm. example, these people who would cure you and, and, and curse your, your curse or cure. Um, and, and that profession has vanished. It, it hasn't totally vanished because there are, you know, professional psychics and there are professional fortune tellers and what have you, but it's true that they've been heavily marginalized within the society as a whole. Um, So, and because of that, you know, like astrology, for example, what astrology 
in a newspaper looks like versus what professional astrologers were doing in the 18th century, totally disconnected, almost nothing to do with it. Like newspaper astrology, um, although mm -hmm. widespread mm -hmm. and publicly available and, you know, um, has nothing to do with the complicated calculations that, that people, you know, many of whom were also astronomers were doing, you know, when they were trying to cast right. horoscopes. So, I mean, um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not saying in, in the myth of discernment that there's no change, but I do think that there has been, um, but I think that that change doesn't cleanly line up with various narratives of disenchantment. So, right, um, right. <clears throat> and then I think in terms of the left-right spectrum, I think one of the things that we tend to, 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 to overlook is that there's, um, movements grow by co-opting people who are not originally part of them. So, you know, the Nazis made a, a massive outreach to working class people in order to staff their political project. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the left has made massive inroads among managerial, you know, bureaucratic or Wall Street people in, in recent decades. I, it's not the part of the left. I not know what I think necessarily we should have been doing. But, um, but you know, there, but there's a tendency to want to expand. And so, um, and that also means that particular ideas or ideological commitments, not, not just for this reason, but for a range of reasons, shift between groups. You know, <laughs> gun ownership, was a was a left wing like everybody right. should have your own gun was right. a left wing policy before it became a right wing. There's like a weird contradiction between support the police and everybody should individually be allowed to have guns. I mean, right. Right. The, you know, and 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 that that so you know you do have things shifting around and they're a lot more fluid. Um, and one of the things that unfortunately the uh, anti-vax movement has done it starts as a left-wing movement but has become right-wing and and so that's you know i mean i'm not saying it's a good movement actually i'm i'm, I, I'm a pro-vaxxer if, if anything but 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 you can see how um that the suspicions that originally defined the anti-vax movement which was suspicion of big pharma big pharma and mm -hmm. and and, mm -hmm. and certain forms of the medical establishment were legitimate suspicions even if the way that they played out in terms of radical anti-vaxxing were no good. But now, yeah. you know, the, the anti-vaxxers have been co-opted by the QAnoners and, uh, you know, and now have, have, were at least in the last election, you know, uh, right. voting on the right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually been one of the main issues. Uh, so, so the, the hex doctor or whatever, something that I've talked about on the show a lot is that we don't have D witcher figures anymore. So I had this guy, Thomas waters on the show. It's one of my favorite episodes. Um, he wrote a book called curse Britain, which is very much in alignment with your, with the myth of disenchantment where he's like, never went away. The witchcraft never went away. So I don't know why people think that it somehow yeah. did. You can see quite clearly that it hasn't. Um, but what did seem to go away is actually that class that you're talking about. So yeah. the D witchers disappeared. And what that means is that there's not the ability to sort through any kinds of claims or interpret them in, in any sort of intelligent way. So that's why I'm, uh, again, find yeah, myself every you're, you're exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So, so like, yeah. so, so every year I find myself then like, you know, figuring out like, how do I defend the anthroposophists against, you know, like people saying they're Nazis or whatever. But so then it also comes from this place of, this kind of uh, yeah, this sort of de deification and 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 refined history of science, so that people then you know they see um, these things. Or, or <laughs> it's not just science, actually, but they see things like anti-vax. They see things like um, uh, you know, and remove that 
critique of big pharma, which is completely valid, or even just value in people's lives, the fears that people might actually have, whether they're scientifically based or not, or insurrection, uh, resistance to the state, all these kinds of things, which you're right, are actually gaining strength from theorizing activity, organizing on the left. And now it just sort of gets pulled away and turned into this right project so that actually we find ourselves in this really dangerous place where people who might be making those arguments from the left are now seen to be right, right wing because people can't rightly interpret it. But also like the, the center becomes far more dangerous because it like any anything that sort of looks out of line with the center now appears to be this sort of fascist project because we don't have the D witcher figures to be able to figure some of this stuff out or to interpret I, I, it. I think you're right. I think, but I think it's not just even the absence of D witchers, but also I think, you know, the contemporary, um, let's say late capitalist order or whatever you want to talk about it is deeply unsatisfying for a whole ton of people. Like most people aren't happy. Like, you know, contemporary U S <laughs> is fucked up, uh, in particular, but that's true in different parts of the globe. You know, we have precarious labor. We have, um, we've, you know, the unions have been smashed. We have in the U S terrible healthcare or, you know, an opposite absence of it. I mean, a, a lot of people are suffering and then they want big changes. And so the degree to which we can on the left actually provide change. I mean, this is why I was like, you know, a Sanders or Sand and, a, and Warren supporter in, in the primary. I think we act, the system is broken and we do need to fix it. And I, unfortunately, if we, only embody the the idea that um, the system is basically broken if only everybody could become middle class or something like that. That's not going to make people happy. I think most you know most middle class, mm -hmm. even most rich white people are unhappy, right? So it's not a question of just distributing more money. It's a question of fundamentally reforming the society on a whole bunch of levels. And mm -hmm. so that anger and that <coughs> displacement that, that I think a lot of people feel that their lives are unhappy and that they're boring or that their jobs are bullshit, you know, as David Graeber has described bullshit jobs, you know, like, or they can't even get a job. Like we need to channel that anger, that resentment, that energy um, into productive and positive change instead mm -hmm. of um, letting it then, you know, you, you're either with the center or you're terrible or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, which is, which is unfortunately something that I, that I hear a lot of, like, you know, and I understand because, um, you know, the, the instruction is scary. There's some crazy, you know, there's some stuff, you know, sure. yeah, scary sure. stuff out there. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting. So in, in your uh, forthcoming book, Metamodernism, you know, you wrote, um, which uh, by the way, I'm just, I'm very excited and I know I, I won't, I won't quote too heavily from it because I know it's not out yet, but everybody, you know, pre-order the book when, when you can. Um, but, I, you know, you write that people are, you know, they're often appealing to radical language rather than sort of doing any kind of radical act or re-encountering or maybe encountering for the first time a different approach, right? So I think that that's yeah. part of it too, is that the impulses get, because of postmodernism's uh, deep focus, and, and and rightfully so, I mean, I'm glad we had it, but it's deep focus on language and how language structures everything. Um, we ended up thinking that the declaration of, uh, like a radical declaration in the field of language would actually sort of change everything. Now, yeah, in some ways that is a that is like a spell. That's how a spell works. You know, it's like abracadabra, I, as I speak, it becomes or whatever that the actual translation is there. But it's like, but it does 
it, it, it only goes so far. And so we need to sort of move into a different kind of layering of action and language and theorizing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think we, we keep trying to intervene. So a bunch of things at stake here. On the one hand, we keep trying to intervene at the purely linguistic level instead of making deep-seated structural changes. And that means that, you know, I mean, and, and that gets us more out of sync with the people we're trying to help. So for example, most Latinos don't actually like the term Latinx. That's a that's a term, that's a that's a correction that has been formulated within the academy. And I think, you know, a, a lot of people want to make their lives to be better. And if all you're doing is changing the term, no, I'm not saying, you know, language doesn't have any effect. Language has a huge effect. I'm not saying that that certain words should be used like the N-word, which I'm, you know, not interested in using. But I want to say that if we keep our intervention purely at the level of language, we're not actually addressing the fundamental problems. And more importantly, or, or equally importantly, um, you know, if all we're doing is, ch is changing lists of preferred terms, we're not helping uh, queer rights. If, if all we're doing is just changing our list of um, um, preferred uh, uh, ways of describing people's disadvantagedness, we're not actually solving the things that are hurting them in this society. So again, language reform is, is part of it. It's okay. It's not bad. I, I like language reform, but it's not enough. And then the other thing is as scholars, too often what people are actually doing is trying to just get published, which unfortunately, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, means that they're, you know, they, they're, their grand projects are terminating in like articles that nobody reads and cites. I mean, the vast majority of academic articles in religious studies are never cited. So mm -hmm. if, and people, you know, um, and so, and there's often a lot of language of radicalism, but that then ends up with fairly mundane uh, uh, end results, like a whole vast edifice about, I don't know, the enchanted nature. And then it ends with like, you should buy a Prius basically and recycle. <laughs> and we already know that, like we don't need English professors to tell us that. So, I mean, and, and you know, I, I understand people in the academy are struggling too. And, and, you know, there's a lot of precarity there. Tenure track jobs are few and far between. So a lot of people are doing what they think that they need to do to get by, but you can see why the other thing that I, that I, find and I'm trying to resist in the metamodernism book is the fact that a lot of it terminates in negativity. Like there's, a, you know, under the the way that the academy was structured um, and, uh, you know, the way that postmodernism emerged as a scholarly model meant that mostly what we were doing is like basically like being negative to each other, you know? Yeah. And so, um, and, and that turned out to be, we've spread a kind of cynicism and skepticism. Some of that is well-founded, but if it anything, but if thought only terminates in skepticism, then you can't get anything done. And if you, if your politics only terminates in cynicism, you can't motivate people to make actual changes. And so uh, we need to like, not only critique, but we need to be able to move through critique and out the other side to envision better possible worlds. And so part of what yeah. I want to do is provide a scholarly lattice uh, out of which we could do that kind of work. Yeah, scholarly lattice. I like that. I mean, I think, <clears throat> you know, um, when I talk to Kathy Weeks, she has, you know, the anti-work feminist, she has this sort of great thing in um, her book, uh, I think it's in Constituting Feminist Subjects, which is also very aligned with um, some of the stuff that she read about in Metamodernism, where um, she says, you know, ba basically, we lived in a time of critique. It's not that critique isn't valuable, but it's time to move on to a time of proposition again, you know, and I think that <clears throat> that proposition is something that I'm always trying to work on. And it, it does bring, it does bring me to a sort of um, <laughs> a critique, <laughs> but it, it brings me to a sort of uh, like frustration with people that are trying to come up with solutions. It almost seems like, like solutions is like a tech is like a tech buzz, you know, uh, framework for things. Mm -hmm. So rather than trying to come up with critique or solution, like I get really frustrated when people, um, say things like, 
like who said this? Somebody who I really respect, Nora Bateson. She was talking to my friend Doug Rushkoff, and she said, you know, well, we just keep trying to solve our problems with the same solutions, and we need to rethink the solutions. But the thing is, if you rethink this, if you really want to rethink the solutions, like actually the problems that you thought were the problems also change. They also yeah. go away. Mm-hmm. And you have yeah. a completely different reconfiguration or a completely different configuration. And so the way I the way I try to say it is like um <laughs> You know, my politics are sort of like, you know, the the moment when Bugs Bunny's being chased down the the street by you know a bunch of cartoon dogs, and he he comes down a you know a, a dead end alley, and there's just a brick wall, and so he pulls a piece of chalk out and draws a door, and then walks through <laughs> the wall and closes it behind him. Now, actually, it's like okay, so what actually is on the other side? <laughs> what is on the other side of that? How did he do that? How can we walk into a different world rather than constantly, you know, resisting this one and doing that, you know, classic Lacanian thing where, you know, his mm-hmm. critique, which is we, you don't want revolution. You actually just want new masters. You want the people who are in power to change faces so you can stay in struggle because the struggle in, it imbues you with a sense of identity, not actually overcoming and moving on to the next thing. And so, it's part of why I really, you know, I know you did use the word solution in, in metamodernism, but I, but it is part of why I really appreciate this, this new book, you know, because it, you're just trying to sort of frame, like, actually, you know, our view of the problem is also incorrect <laughs> and, yeah. and how to approach it is also incorrect. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, I think your, your first point, especially that, that, you know, I mean, that we have to look at what we thought were the problems in new ways. And also that, uh, you know, that Lacanian point that we often set up a big other that we set ourselves up as a rebel against without recognizing that they only have some of the hegemony that we give them, you know? I mean, and mm-hmm. so, you know, and 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 and, and part of the, the constant, you know, yeah, I mean, so, the, you know, the, yes, there's this kind of concrete question, like what, what should we do next? I mean, there was a long period in which postmodernists um, as an academic paradigm, I'm using it in a somewhat precise way in the book, but, you know, set up a model of a modernism that they were rebelling against and set themselves up as merely antithetical to it. So, but it mm-hmm. turns out they shared more with the people that they were critiquing than, than subsequent people have realized. And insofar as that the movement was formulated exclusively negatively, a post an, or an anti or a D, you know, all the, all that language of negativity only gets you so far. So you then have to be able to do that you know, mm-hmm. basically Hegelian thing I talk about here in the book, which is the negation of the negation and how do you then, you know, grant the negative, the critique and then move past it instead of, um, instead of trying to resist it. So, you know, the, the, the a lot of disciplines are f- split between people who think of themselves as realists and anti-realists, but they mostly agree. And then they, what they fight over is pretty small. Um, but what they agree <laughs> about, they're not necessarily right about. So often, as I've tried to show in this book, <laughs> some of what they, the shared terrain is, is, is often what doesn't get questioned. And then that turns out to be the stuff that's um, often screwed up. So I think this speaks, I think maybe this will speak to both uh, metamodernism and a myth of disenchantment. Like, something that I kept thinking when I was reading Myth of Disenchantment was that a lot of people that uh, are are viewing enchantment from both sides or viewing a sort of enchanted or inspirited world from both sides, they're doing something very similar, which is that they, they're envisioning the world. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like an episode of Buffy where it's like, the world is as it is, but you just put a spirit in it. But mm-hmm. actually like, and then, then you have a spiritual worldview or, you know, I mean, we could say the same about, people do certain kinds of alternative medicine, like 
oh, like I'm going to do acupuncture so I can identify that there's something wrong with your liver so I can give you this liver medication, you know, or this liver pill. Not not in the sort of traditional Chinese, <laughs> I realize I'm using a misnomer here, but the traditional Chinese way, which actually would view the liver as something totally different, but actually it's this sort of, and so what I, um, and I know you might object to that by saying that I'm uh, making a fundamentalist move by saying that there is the real quote unquote old Chinese way of doing things in the new, but let's just move past that. Um, I think, <laughs> I think what I, so, but what, what I'm saying is that actually there's not, um, there's not an attempt to uh, dissolve the terms of engagement completely. And so this is why you know, I mean, I've brought up anthroposophy a bunch of times, but it's one of the reasons why Rudolf Steiner is so valuable to me is that for me, it it's led me out of uh, trying to enchant the world by seeing a fairy in a tree or something like that, but rather to re redefine or re-encounter the, or, or just encounter, again, encounter for the first time, um, the... Uh, falseness of materiality how materiality itself and materialism itself is formed by a sort a very particular knot of percepts and concepts that actually is not really my experience at all that not just phenomenology but a kind of development a radical development of my phenomenology reveals something new to me so <clears throat> why am i bringing all this up because it's the sort of it's a sort of opposite move. It's not a reenchantment, but rather of of the world by inserting spirits or respecting a tree or you know talking mm -hmm. to a, a flower or something like that. But rather, it's a, a it's a dissolving of all the ways that I would see and experience the world that needed the insertion of those things in the first place. And so that for me is actually my experience a lot of times now. It can mess up the day when I actually experience <laughs> things that way and I'm walking down the street. But I do think um, it aligns with this project of metamodernism in a way, even though I don't think you explicitly um, state that kind of stuff, but but just the sort of reformulation or the, or, or the dissolving of the old uh, concepts, not because not because they're useless, but rather because there's something else on offer in dissolving them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are a whole host of concepts and ordinary taken for granted ways of being in the world that we need to productively dissolve and then, you know, reconfigure, re reassemble, rehybridize. Um, so, you know, and for me, you know, my practice is, is Buddhist in a fairly conventional um, Zen kind of a way, but I think I find similarly you know, there's a famous um, Zen poem, basically, that uh, that I can't literally quote because uh, I probably haven't looked at it for like 10 years. But it's something like, you know, you see the mountain uh, and then you and then you see that there's no mountain and then you practice again and then you see that there's a mountain again. Mm -hmm. And but but like what it is, is it's a reorientation to the to the world that that um, is made possible by moving through its negation and, and out the other side. You know, so it, it, it's no longer has the same force. Um, once you have uh, reoriented yourself to it. So, um, you know, and for me, yeah, I mean, my Zen is pretty stripped down. It's a, it's a pretty, you know, but, but the, I find that the meditative part of it um, incredibly useful for me not getting caught in fixed concepts and, and as a way of becoming aware of the limitations of my own thinking and um, 
um, you know, words are tools, you know, and we, you know, our language is a net and we have to not mistake the net for the thing we're trying to catch with the net or, you know, what have you. Um, so that doesn't mean throwing away the net and never using language, but rather we can reorient ourselves so that we're not uh, being netting ourselves. I don't know. No, no, I know what you mean. Like the way of saying it, which is, I don't like this way of saying it, but I think it's the easiest for getting people to sort of get it is that language is contained within something else as well. It's not the only container. Like, I think, you know, when I'm trying to talk about the occultist uh, understanding I have of the world to my friends who are into psychoanalysis, for example, I'll say something like, look, I think that the lack and, you know, the, the empty space and the negation and drives, I think that all exists. I just think it's contained within Christ. So like mm-hmm. that, you know, that's really ve- vexing and frustrating to them because they want it to actually be the constitutive groundswell of all being, but I'm not canceling it out. I'm just saying it's within yeah. something else, you know, it's, 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 it's contained within something else. But I think, the, it's interesting. Yeah, and, that, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and and where I end up in the metamodernism project is toward uh, something that's closer toward a let's say a minimal um, ontology, which is to say this kind of what I call zeteticism, and you know uh, uh, there. I mean, but it's an orientation toward it's a kind of openness. It's meant to be a kind of openness to the world and what may occur in it. Like a lot of people who define themselves as pure skeptics are dogmatic materialists of some sort or another. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people who um, but you know, a lot of other people aren't uh, critical of any of the things that are handed down to them. And uh, what I try and do is have a kind of openness and minimal belief. Like I don't know, is is you know, uh, are there ghosts? My default assumption is I probably I don't know, maybe not, but I'm not sure. And there are many reasons to be open to it. And you know, what is the value? What am I getting out of deciding whether they're ghosts or not? I mean, it'd be better to keep an open mind and and not have an orientation to it, you know, and just think, okay, you know. Um, so, I mean, it, this kind of open mind, and then also a, a strong sense that my own conceptions are limited, a kind of humble orientation to my knowledge, so that mm-hmm. I know I can always be wrong, and I am wrong about a whole bunch of things. I don't know what they are. I'm probably, you know, uh, and, and, uh, um, and, and in that respect, that kind of humility um, is important, but then it's not a humility that then terminates in just a skeptic who says, you know, you can't say anything about anything, uh, you know, either a skeptical materialism or even, or a skepticism that in, in Hegel's memorable formulation just waits around for something new to hurl it into the abyss. I'm not, you know, it doesn't end in that kind of skepticism. It ends in a kind of knowing that I might know, might know or might not know. So it's a skepticism of skepticism itself. So right. could this world be an illusion? I, I don't know. How would I know? How, you know, but, you know, uh, there may maybe no way to know. And so eh, it might be, it might not be. Um, so well, I, you know, I found yeah. that, I found that like, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's humble, but it's also, there's just an honesty to it. You know, like I just read this book. Um, I think it's called how God becomes real by Tanya Lerman, you know, and um, it was so offensive. Like it was, I was very excited about it in the beginning, but, she, but basically her premise is um, it, it's, it's exciting in a way. It's like, well, why do people talk about, gods and spiritual beings in a different way than they talk about other beings. But but her whole premise is that it's because they're invisible, when in fact, plenty of people say, I see it as if it's anything else walking around yeah. in, the, in the backyard. So, like, it, it it's it sh- the, the, the denial of it, this is the thing that, why I'm saying it's honesty, it's like, you know, it, if you haven't, 
if you haven't seen a ghost or you have seen one and you're unable to sort of interpret the experience in a way that you feel very connected with that allows you to sort of theorize around it and talk about it with other people, like you, you wouldn't go out and like t tell everybody, you know, if you were being honest or humble about it, like the theory, the absolute theory of ghosts and how it works. And that's yeah. what's so frustrating to me about people that have an insistence on materialism. Um, and, and so it's, I think that that's part of that myth of disenchantment thing as well. Like I, I completely agree with the, the premise and the massive amount of like <laughs> examples and research you've done. And I also see that there is this little turning sometimes like there's in the, in the social uh, the humanities and social sciences, there's this thing like Tanya Lerman does where it's like, it, it, how do I paraphrase this line? It's something like, um, you'll know exactly this line when I say it, which is like, uh, whether the phenomena is real or not is not of my concern. What I'm actually studying is this. And it's like, no, that's not true. First of all, you don't believe in it. So just say you don't believe in it. So we yeah. can be honest and be on the same page. But also, it's not true that it's not of your concern. And it's and it and it's that's a dodge. And in that way, I view that as there is some kind of attempt to, I don't know if it's an attempt to disenchant, to give permission to engage in the thing that they view as enchanted. So I don't know. Uh, no, I think, that. I think that, that that's a good point. And I think, you know, it's, it's sometimes called bracketing or, you know, um, phenomenological suspension or, but I mean, yeah, scholarly disciplines normally advance by suspending some aspect of their area of inquiry. So in physics, you know, when physics was formulated, they were like, okay, let's pretend that there's no, that like, I don't know, they're ignoring chemistry. Oh, you know, you formulate a theory of gravity and you're ignoring wind resistance or something, you know, whatever, right? There's always a bracketing, right? And so in religious studies, the central move that allowed the globalization of comparative religion was actually a bracketing of the divine. Like, uh, like let's mm. not decide whether there is really God, but it's a really weird move because, <laughs> right, right. I mean, on the one hand, it, it allowed people to, it allowed the discipline to get over its, um, let's say, Protestant centrism. Um, but it, on the other hand, it, you would think that that would be relevant to, to <laughs> uh, uh, area of inquiry. Right. And, and so, um, you know, so, I mean, I think some kinds of bracketing are okay and, and they're fine, but, but I think what, what, you know, sometimes we just do say like, I don't know, you know, do I know whether there are ghosts or not? I don't know, but I'm most interested in this project is, you know, like what this literary author and how he described, right. you know, ghosts or something. That's totally legit. Um, but what is b bullshit is when people, you know, have these beliefs that they then, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure Tanya Lerman doesn't believe in it. And, and then she's then her, her theory is set up, not just bracketing, but bracketing out. And so, yeah. uh, you know, that, that's a, that's a very different kind of intellectual move. I mean, and, and yeah. it's, and it's, and it's like, a. I mean, the thing is like, actually the substance of your argument depends on whether or not these things are real, because if you're talking about how people formulate and, you know, uh, kindle and keep the beliefs in these beings present, then like, if they are just present, then you're... <laughs> then your theory is completely not just wrong, but it's, it's useless. Like there's no point in bringing it and bringing it up. But I think it's, you know, there's that Nietzsche quote. I forget exactly, but he says something like um, it's, I really love it, but he's like, you know, I really would have loved to be a theory of, 
I really love to have been a scholar of Basil, but uh, since I am not arrogant enough to ignore God in creation, uh, I could not be a scholar of Basil, right? Like I had to start with creation. Otherwise, like, what's the point? You know, and obviously we don't all have the time for that, (laughs) but it, but it would be nice to see people introduce uh, the the expression of the humility of that, like this is what this is what I'm leaving out, um, and I'm not just leaving it out because it's convenient or it's bracketing, but rather um, I'm leaving it out because I can't. I mean, it, it's you know Confucius has that thing where he's like, I don't know when someone asks him what what happens when you die, and he said yeah. something like, I don't know life. How can I know death? Right. I mean, it's just a better answer. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just it's just a better answer there. So, yeah, and I, and I think there are lots of ways that people do it, but I think that this, the sneakiest way for me that people do it is actually dialectical materialism. And so you've written about Hegel quite a bit, so I think it's yeah. maybe an interesting place to go because it seems to me like, you know, dialectical materialism is a way to, like, sweep the <laughs> to to sweep the uh, the the occultist avowal like to sweep it under the carpet to sweep uh, uh you know an ontological argument or whatever a theory of worlds under the carpet so it doesn't have to address it and so it cannot talk about things in terms of these sorts of struggles and never actually take responsibility for hiding it away i mean i don't know if you view it that way but it feels like, <laughs> it's and, like and that to me and and you're talking about it particularly in its marxist formulation yes, yes yeah yeah i mean i think you're right i think i mean i don't i mean uh, i i hadn't previously thought of it in exactly that ter- those terms but i think i think what you're, you're saying is right and in that um you know um i mean yeah, as a kind of ur materialism, and and uh, you know, Marxism has had a, a particular formulation of you know s- um, an emphasis on economic struggle that then tends to treat all activity as happening at the level of the base rather than you know the superstructures mm-hmm. determined by the base, etc. And that that emphasis on struggle can um, uh, and, and material conditions under which that struggle occurs can sometimes function as a way to strip away uh, and ignore or reduce mm-hmm. to merely you know. Um, metaphor or something like that, the, the th- things like enchanted belief. I think that's totally right. Um, I mean, earlier Marx is more interesting to me, you know, the, the Marx of the German ideology where he's trying to formulate something that's more broadly philosophical about the constituents of the human and, and things like that. Um, mm. And Hegel, it's, it's weird. I mean, the dialectic in Hegel is a, is, is a, is a, is a different, quite a different beast, you know, even um it's got his own, you know, Hegel had his own weird mystic, you know, his own interesting mystic project, uh, you know, is also weirdly uh, chauvinistic toward a whole bunch of things. You know, it was a kind of fucked up project, but it was, but he had this, uh, um, you know, th- there's a strong hermetic influence on, on Hegel and, and, and his work that, that other scholars have documented too. So, yeah. 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 And I think that that's, you know, I think, <clears throat> you know, when Sonner was writing about Hegel, who he really respected, he said something like, you know, the problem with Hegel is just that, he thinks everything's an idea. Like he only thinks that the world is actually made up of ideas, but that's not true. They're actually, and I, and I think that that does lead to the kinds of Marxist dialectical materialism that we're talking about. And he says the jump from Hegel to Marx was that Marx just, and and then especially Lenin just said it was all just stuff. 
Like yeah, it was, it's, a, it, it's a flip. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Exactly. Turn it on its head. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what, can you talk about this realism, anti-realism thing? Because I think it actually extends out of what we're talking about right now, this realism, anti-realism thing that you touched on before, but I didn't ask you to maybe clarify for people that are new to this, that concept and that struggle. Yeah. So in the first substantive chapter of the new metamodernism book, I so trace out this question of realism versus anti-realism. So there's this idea that the, there's a received idea that the fight between a bunch of different disciplines or, or different philosophers is a fight between realists and anti-realists. So we're supposed to have like on the one side, I don't know, like, I don't know, a lot of people call themselves realists and they slap a lot of furniture basically. And they're like, you're not, the other guy's not a realist. You know, we're realists or whatever. Is it, uh, it's actually it, called the furniture argument or something it's, like it's that. It's also called you, the furniture argument. Yeah, where you hit the table and you're like, yeah. see, this is real. Don't you, see, you, can't, this is you real. can't deny you can't this is real. It. Yeah, right. exactly. But it turns out that a lot of realists and anti-realists are actually talking past each other. Because what do realists mean when they're realists? What is the real that they're talking about? And often what they want to say is that the commonsensical world of ordinary experience isn't uh, isn't really what's real. What's real is some kind of, you know, scientific, you know, they're, they're whatever they think that the contemporary scientific paradigm is. And most of the anti-real so-called anti-realists also say basically the same thing that the common sense world is only approximately the case. And nobody's really fighting over the existence of tables. What we're, what they're fighting over is confidence in the contemporary often is, is the, is confidence in the contemporary sense of what the scientific paradigm is, but it's often humanities professors who, who don't even know what the contemporary state of science is. So, you know, so, and, <laughs> <laughs> and so it seems like a weird phantom fight that way. But then th there's also in a range of disciplines, uh, you know, there's a strong tendency of 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 basically terminate, you know, a whole range of different things that get called realism or anti-realism. So you can be a Kantian and you get called uh, either a realist for for granting that there's a universe at all or an anti-realist for more often for granting that there's a thing on Zik that there's a part of the world that, that we don't know because it, it transcends the categories of space and time. That same position could be counted as realist or anti-realist depending on, um, on on who you're into. Or, you know, the positivists themselves, um, like Carnap, often bracketed out the existence of a world beyond senses. They often get described as like super realists, but in actuality, they were more explicitly anti-realist than many of the uh, of people who get called anti-realists. Right. Or, you know, Derrida never denied the existence of a real world. He just thought that it was outside discourse and it ruptured it. So mm -hmm. he's basically like Neo-Kantian in, in his view. So whether that counts as realist or anti-realist um, is a red herring. So I think that even in many ways, the whole fight about realists and anti-realists uh, uh, is, a, is a mess. And then also many people like we were, we were talking in advance, like uh, Quantum Yusu, whose, uh, whose work on, on um, you know, critical realism sometimes gets, you know, what he, what he concedes to is a totally hyper chaotic world that is way more uh, um, mad and less comprehensible than what the anti-realists believe in, but, but in the name of realism. So, so, I mean, um, can I break or, that down? Yeah. Can I break that down for people real quickly? Yeah, sure, and sure, you can sure. tell me if you can tell me if I get it right or not, because I'm not like a big, you know, Quentin Milisu fan. So I might also get his argument wrong. So we'll see. But yeah. it basically he says, look, there's um <clears throat> like the way that the way that um certain philosophers frame things is that you can't ever talk about some something that is not a kind of entanglement of thinking and what's, you know, quote unquote out there or like being or whatever. But he would say that actually that's not correct. There is something that's out there and that it's, um, it's the fact that everything 
needs to be present for everything else to exist. Is that sort of right? And so then- Sort of, and but then he wants to further qualify this out there uh, and say that then the main thing that we can say about it is that it's unpredictable, that it's a kind of hyper chaos around which, you know, it could do anything at any time. I mean, this is his answer to Hume and Hume's famous, you know, um, so-called critique of induction, which uh, turns out not to be really a critique of induction, but there's a, or causation, but there's a long story there. But, you know, Miyasu wants to say, yeah, th- th- there is a thing out there. And the only thing we can know about it is that it's like it could do anything. It could it could suddenly, you know, we could all wake up tomorrow and be sheep or something. I mean, like so. So in 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 granting his the, what he so he he grants an other world that is a whose central features it's unpredictability, which is a way more skeptical position than the people he criticizes for 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 not being realists. It's also yeah. just like an Old Testament position, isn't it? Like I mean, I just I th- yeah. and and I also I feel like he and. Um, how do I get into this? Like, and and why is it important other than I just want to publicly gripe about these people? Um, so he and um, like the object-oriented ontologist, right? Like, yeah. so so Milius would say something like, you know, there's like a, a, a this, this contingency or this hyper chaotic world or whatever. That's the proof that something exists outside of thinking and 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 all that. But I just I just want to. I don't know how he could believe that that didn't come from him thinking it. Like, that's the thing that drives me crazy about it. It's like, where did that idea come from? I don't yeah. think that you really can posit this concept without saying that you thought of it. And if you, and if you don't like, well, okay, that's great. Then let's see how you, res- well, I, it's not really a fair argument to say how you respond if I would plagiarize your book. But I do think it's like, <laughs> and the same thing with object oriented ontologists who would say things like, you know, what, you know, what does the table think? It's not just the table is here and I'm going to slap it, but the table is also having its own experience, but you're thinking about what the table's experience is. Yeah, so, well, so there's an interpretive leap that the, that the object orientologists and that the new materialists are doing, which they're often not owning or, or only owning partially, which is, you know, they want to speak on behalf of the object world, but without right. registering the interpretive procedures that they've done, gone through in order to do that. So I think, right. you know, oh, really, the table thinks this, well, how do you know, you know, like the, the, the you know, I mean, um, so I mean, right. So it's so that part is totally messy. And then just to give a give give your listeners a sense of where I end up on that chapter, you know, where I try and try and get to is a recognition that the term real itself is a contrastive term that necessitates that you specify, uh, you know, once we move beyond realism, but to the question of what is real, that 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 the real is a contrastive term that necessitates a contrast category. So this something, you know, that I'm looking at, you know, I don't know, like uh, a picture, like we can cross my room to try to think of an example, but you know, that uh, um, <laughs> I have a, I have a picture, which is a, uh, a picture of a woman. And then the question, you know, let's say her name is Mary, the, you know, she, that picture is not the real Mary, but it is a real picture. Right. Or, mm-hmm. you know, my, my tofurkey sandwich is a real sandwich, but not real Turkey. Right. So, I mean, like a lot of the things that we're talking about are um, really we're, we're not spelling out the contrast class. So if we want to say the satanic panic uh, of the 1980s wasn't real, well, w- there was a real panic. They just weren't really satanic child abusers that were the cause of that panic. So uh, in a lot of cases, we're, we're not being clear enough about that. And then the other piece that I take out of that chapter is that often the real is being described in terms of mind independence. So the contrast class is the presumption is whatever is real is what's mind independent. But then there's a total mess about 
what think about what does it mean to be mind dependent? And and surprisingly, there's a much thinner philosophical literature on mind dependence. Mm-hmm. And so we spend a lot of time trying to jump outside ourselves and imagine, you know, the table's perspective or whether there are ding on sick or totally. you know, whatever. But what does it mean for something to depend on mind? And then I end up with a typology of different ways that think we might reasonably think of things depending on mind. And those often turn out to be very, very different kinds of things. And then it turns out in the humanities and social sciences in particular, um, we still have with this weird, like mind independent notion of the real, but then are or, or often do it in a background assumptions, but then often the things that we're talking about are like, you know, cars and furniture or, or social forms who's, who in certain respects are mind dependent. And so it becomes incredibly messy. Like is, is, and we use this language of social construction to cover it. So is a table socially constructed? Yes. Would it also hurt if I hit my head on it? Yes. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. the, the idea that those two things are out of tension um, is, I think, a mistake and then you know needs further elaboration that then I spend way too long in the book trying to think about what is social construction once we no longer assume that it banishes something <laughs> outside of the realm of the real. Um, you know, but... Um, but well, and, and you also have to determine what hurt and what head means and what bang means, right? Like in that, mm-hmm. in that. So it's not just the table that gets granted. It's, yeah. you know, do you, but I think, you know, so the way... The, a really huge part of what I'm trying to do, I think, in my life is conv- convince people like actually like the only <laughs> I don't, this will probably frustrate you, but it's fine. But the only like like the only real position to take is solipsism. It's just that nobody's ever tried to refine that. Like nobody's ever really done the work of expressing like and going deep into what solipsism is, other than trying to dismiss and overcome it with these mind independent. Um, concepts like, of course, there are some people that have tried to do that, but it's it it's rare. What would it actually mean if we said that there was that that it was just me? However, like I grant the other existence, not in some sort of like grand uh, egotistical gesture, or or maybe it is, but rather that like um, through an act of love, I accept that others exist. So it's it, I think yes, it's just, so that's 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 a good point. Of, that's where we split, I think, because then. <laughs> So, because I mean, I think a lot of, you know, like, let's say there's a whole realm of philosophical thought that is mostly about, you know, this is what we teach to undergrads, you know, um, so-called Cartesian doubt of different sorts. You know, I mean, Descartes didn't mean it wasn't a skeptic, but we pretend he was Mm because we only teach the beginning of the meditations and we blow the (laughs) minds of undergraduates when they're like, you could be in the matrix. And they're like, whoa, you know, Uh you Uh could be, it could be the case that the real world is all an illusion, you know, whoa, you know, that, that, that blows their minds. But then I think, you know, in terms of pragmatic, you know, Descartes said only something like later, even in the same text, you know, uh, only somebody who's crazy could seriously doubt the, really doubt the existence uh, that we have bodies or that there's a world out there. I don't want to say it's only crazy people can doubt that, but I think (laughs) you could get yourself into a neurotic place by doing it. And in point of fact, what what we, what we should do is um, just know that we don't know for certain anything. I mean, I'm against, so Descartes made a problem of believing in certainty as a goal of knowledge. Like you only, only knowledge is what's you're, you're certain about only certain knowledge. That's a huge mistake. We're not certain. We don't really know, but the burden of proof is not on all the fantasy philosophers come up with, with about how we could be brains and vats or in the matrix or, you know, deceived by deceiving demons. But, you know, like the, the weirder, more mysterious and strange thing is that we, seem to be in a world that we're experiencing in a certain way. Uh, and that, that is, that, that is the thing that, that where the burden of proof should be on, you know, we emerge, the other way to put it is we emerge as conscious entities interdependently 
with the world. So, you know, it's, it's not the case that, that we're just dreaming the world into existence, nor is it the case that there is a world somehow external from that, that we know something about external from the human that is then, you know, um, uh, that, that we're then artificially like, you know, what, what was that Gilbert Ralphing machines? Ghosts in the machine. We're not ghosts yeah. in the machine, you know? So. Yeah. Well, I, so I agree with everything you said. So I think that's fine. I, mean, oh, okay. I, I don't mean like, I don't mean solipsism in the sense that I'm a brain in a vat or anything like mm-hmm. that, but rather that yeah. since the groundswell of all my experience is something that I refer to as thinking, this isn't yeah. something that I refer to as like this weird collection of evolving states, you know, and, and rising and falling states. I mean, maybe I don't like the term states because it sounds too political, but you know, whatever, whatever that is um, that, you know, if I really were to take that seriously, that would lead me to a type of solipsism that would also cause me to redefine what I mean by I and what I mean by me. And uh-huh, so, uh-huh. And, and, and it would have to include the experience of something that appears to be other than me, you know, and how does that separation exist? And I think there are delusion sort of uh, so, so, yeah. uh, ways of, ways of yeah. expressing that, that the, actually the separation and then, you know, the negative space is actually positive and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think it's, just that sort of um so, so there we agree then again because yeah. I, I i think too that one of the things that we mistake is this idea of an autonomous ego fully formed you know like again this is a typically we could say cartesian error although actually descartes was more sophisticated than that but the i you know imagining that we're this like unitary self rigid self looking out on the world whereas actually we're entangled in complex and messy ways you know with, with right. the world around us and and our self is component it's 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 multiple and and, and in certain ways you know I, I often default into the buddhist idea of no self you know that there's in some ultimate way we're an unfolding process not a um not a rigorous uh, autonomous rational entity you know just drop down in a body or something like that um, yeah yeah i mean i i don't i don't know I don't completely know where I fall on this idea of self because it, I do feel that there is maybe something that is like a self that um, that's a grant uh, Quentin Milsu, his idea that there is something out, outside of mind, but there, there is a self that is somehow inaccessible um, or, or that is somehow, uh, you know, the, the process, the process is the self, you know? So yeah, what, I think that's know? where I tend to lean. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So like, rather than my thoughts, my thinking, you know, those are two different, those are two different things. But um, yeah, I mean, it's the, you know, the thing I'm, the way I explain it mostly to people is really easy. There's this occultist, Lon Milo Duquette, and, you know, the subtitle of one of his books is it's all in your head. You just have no idea how big your head is, you know? And I love that that is the the way of expressing it. It's like what's actually included in that. But I want to move on to maybe the final thing that we can talk about here, which is that, you know, there, you mentioned it just very briefly, <laughs> although it is throughout metamodernism, what the sort of political implication and project of this metamodernist um, and the myth of disenchantment also is. Now, I think that, even though it laces itself through metamodernism, you're very careful in the beginning to say, look, I'm not attacking modernism. I'm not attacking postmodernism. What I'm actually doing is coming at the uh, way in which the humanities become a sort of hub and ha- and have been for a long time and the way it's practiced the, the way they practice these kinds of struggles this dialectic back and forth and um, the way that it's failed to do so and how we need to sort of pull these things apart and 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 work on them more generally um, and I thought 
you know, <laughs> this would be very helpful for, for people um, who think that the only place, one, that the only place they can go to do this kind of work is by going to academia, when in fact it doesn't even quite exist. Like metamodernism doesn't quite exist in academia. I guess it maybe at Williams College it does now. But it, it doesn't yet. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think for me, um, the way that this ties into the myth of disenchantment is, you know, you have this, this su- I think is a subchapter, and it's really fascinating about how there's this current of uh, this current of sort of organizing that's happening alongside religious studies and anthropology and so on and so forth, which is theosophy. And so historically, theosophy was pulling in all these people that were doing something that was quite like, to me, from my view, a meta-modernist project, which was we will begin to sort of liberate these forms of learning and we'll try to do scholarly work and we'll try to talk to people that are actually living and experiencing the kinds of uh, uh, religions and practices and all that sort of stuff that we're interested in rather than just reading in a library in a way that's, you know, preferred or, you know, uh, enacted by the academy. And so in some ways, like I kind of... (laughs) I don't know where you stand on this, but I kind of view there's like this sort of um, like, you know, there's this kind of way in which metamodernism seems like you're advocating this kind of occult a, a, a philosophy thing. I mean, I call myself an occult philosopher. I did before I read your book. So maybe I'm, you know, just biased toward it. But it seems like there's a kind of uh, advocacy of that sort of uh, theosophical way of doing the work. I mean, that's interesting because I, I didn't think of it in terms of that kind of a genealogy, um, although I haven't, since I'm just starting, you're, this is the first interview I've done about the metamodernism book. People, <laughs> people haven't, you know, done, I haven't done much work connecting the two projects together and seeing how they fit together. I, I do also have a, speaking of academic overwork, I, I have an edited volume I'm co-editing about theosophy and the study of religion and exactly mm. how much of an impact it, it's had and so religion. Um, I think in terms of the politics of this, whether it's a cult philosophy or not, I mean, I think there are, uh, I guess, huh, if, if you push me on it and I'm being honest, there, there is a, there's an occult philosophy too, but in two ways, but they're not theosophical necessarily. There is, on the one hand, I am trying to write this book in a very clear way, but there are also a lot of hidden references. And so I've written this in a way, to, you know, for my own amusement, that there are a lot of things tucked in here that that would hopefully be unpacked. Uh, uh, but But the background in the, in the the but the the other piece of it uh not so much to occult things but to philosophical things mostly but um but especially uh, across a wide spectrum of asian as well as european mm-hmm. philosophy um but in terms of the politics of it um you know again i mean I don't, uh you know not to to overly uh uh determine it because i don't like projects that are back back constructed to fit a particular predetermined political conclusion. Um, I think politics is super important, but if you decide what your conclusion is before you begin writing the study, you're going to, you're going to warp it. Um, But I'll say that my politics are motivated by a kind of anarcho-socialism where what I'm really trying to do is produce a disalienated uh, form of knowledge that is accessible to and brings in people beyond the ivory tower. So I think that if, if you're seeing that as as what you're re- referencing as, as a cult or theosophical, I think it's exactly right. There, we, we have to, the the ivory tower model of the purpose of the humanities um, and their predetermined questions and values sucks. 
And the way that we, unfortunately, the way that we're trying to do social, I mean, social justice is important, but the academic formulations of social justice advocacy are often buried away in crappy little journals that nobody reads, written in jargonistic language. And inside the academy, we've internalized a bad notion of value neutrality, which means that if you speak up for a positive project, you get attacked. Whereas you can be negative and critical and dismissive all you want. Like I can call out anybody as problematic and and nobody will be like, oh, you're putting in values. But the minute I say, here's what I think our politics, our ethics should look like, it looks like values. So there's this weird asymmetry in what we think of when we are thinking of values. And so... um, what I want to do in this project is encourage people to put all their values on the table to, 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 for us as scholars, for us as human beings. And then I think that there's an incredible value to the humanities and social sciences as models for a potential way of life. Like the point of, the, mm-hmm. the point of this knowledge, and this may be also where you're seeing resonances with what they call philosophy, the point of this knowledge shouldn't be just to write more books or to say for cocktail conversation or to memorize historical figures or, you know, whatever, some, some anemic version of critical thinking or something like that. You should be able to live it. And what does it mean to be able to live it? And I try and explore that a little bit. What would it mean to focus on human flourishing? What kinds of knowledge uh, would be necessary to that kind of flourishing? Um, you know, uh, yeah. So yeah, that, opposite, that's what's funny. Right? Yeah. Like the opposite, right? Like where, like the living it would actually yeah. also produce the ways that you would study, interpret, and think about knowledge. I mean, you have yeah. this, you have this great, um, it's really, it's really like, it's probably obvious to people who are uh, scholars of religion, but really mind blowing when you think about it the first time where you say, you know, sociology, the way it's conducted um, created new sites of sociology because we got to study the ways that people were giving surveys and the ways that people were gathering data and all that kind of stuff. And so that's the trend where um, forms of knowledge create new uh, objects to, or, or form <laughs> methods of gathering information create new objects that become uh, sites to gather, you know, information from. But yeah. it could also be like this opposite, where it's like actually the way we live um, produces the understanding that leads us to, um, or, or that that leads us to an understanding of how we should know. And I think that that's really um, something I saw as well that was really yeah, beautiful. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you, and it doesn't seem surprising to me that someone who was raised with a certain kind of spiritual tradition that to at least people from the outside seems dislocated, where you're raised with a, a Buddhism, but then, you know, all the places that you've uh, lived and worked and all that kind of stuff yeah. seems sort of like, oh, well, that's not where Buddhism is supposed to take place or whatever. But but that you would have this practice in your life and that that would lead you to thinking, hmm, maybe there's a different way to know. Maybe there's a different way to sort through rather than, um, you know, well, just sort of the 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 way that we think standard uh, academic stuff works, where you tear everything apart with the tool of uh, you know analysis, where you use the the sword in the tarot deck, you know to to inquire into everything, but it it, it shouldn't be so. And so that that's like, um, you know, it's like this. Uh, it, <laughs> the question when um, 
you know, what's his name? Nehart is like talking to black, black elk. And he says, you know, where the peace bites come from. And black elk says something like, uh, yeah, well, a uh, Buffalo woman gave it to us. And then she turned into a, a, a bunch of different color Buffalo and ran away. And John Nehart says, well, you know, were you there? Did you, did, did you see it? How do you, how do you know? Uh, did it happen? Did that really happen? And black elk kind of looks at him, you know, for a second, like, what? and then he says, ah, uh, you know, whether it happened or not, I cannot say, but if you think about it, you'll see that it is true, right? Which is reverses the form of the form of knowing and how you would come to it. And that seems completely unavailable um, to, I mean, not to romance, I'm sure that has its own issues, but, but, but that seems completely unavailable to uh, university at all. I mean, that, yeah. that idea of how you would know something out of living rather than uh, a certain prescribed form of study. So I'm really glad that you are in, interrogating that and using the trajectory of academia to sort of unfold that new way of doing it. Thank you. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. <laughs> it's nice of you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I really like the book, and um, I, I'm I'm excited to I'm excited for everybody to read it, and I I do hope it makes a it should make a big dent. I mean, it should make it should help people uh, have new problems. We'll put it that way. You know, <laughs> have yeah. new challenges. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my hope, and you know, it's it's definitely my most personal project. So it's me sticking my neck. I mean, I've done two books before that that were very historical, and this is a. This is me saying, you know, where should we go? You know, what should we do next? You know, um, and uh, yeah, so I have all those, you know, fears that come from that. I mean, it's easier to just be deconstructive. It's easier to be, or, or you know, Foucauldian genealogies, which is what I was doing for, for a couple of books before this. It's easy to sh rip shit down. It's much harder to try and build. And so this mm -hmm. is an attempt to try and build, you know. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about all of this. I know your book is actually a little ways off from coming out, but we'll have you back on once you've um uh once it's come out and has been uh yeah, it's been into, a pleasure. thrown into the public. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and uh thank you. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, man. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>